The only one I want to add here is that the material principle of the Reformation is the doctrine of justification. But if Luther is is willing to throw Jimmy on the stove, right, to get rid of the book of James, or is like at least willing to to talk about it Mm -hmm. rather than give up the material principle. He's willing to violate the formal principle of the Reformation of Sola Scriptura in order to hold to the material Reformation principle of justification by faith alone. And that to me is yeah, wild. That's a, that is wild, so. and that's an interesting, interesting thought. Hello and welcome to a nonagenarian episode of On the Journey. We are in the 90s of episodes, which the 90s are, I'm a big fan of the 90s. I'm a 90s person, but we are concluding our series on Martin Luther that we've been doing for a very long time here. I feel like Luther's been a recurring theme at various stages of our entire project that we call On the Journey, but we're glad that you're here. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Visit us at chnetwork.org. If you want to find the other episodes in this series, uh, visit us in our online community as well. If you want to connect with others like yourself, community.chnetwork.org. And of course, if you want to donate to help this project and others like it keep going, then please go to chnetwork.org slash compass and be a monthly supporter of what we do. Ken, we have come to the end mm-hmm. of yet another series. How you feeling? I feel good today. Feel great. And good. um you described the series as that we've been here for a long time. I, I guess we've been here for maybe eight or nine or ten episodes, but not really a long time. Um but yeah, we are coming to a conclusion. Um in, in fact, I refer to this as a brief series because even though we've bounced off Martin Luther's life and theology, we haven't come close to doing something like a, a full study of Lutheran theology. Um, no way. Mainly kind of bou- bouncing off Luther and the events of the Reformation in order to focus in on the the most critical issues. Um, anyway. And that's what I hope um, people I, understand from the beginning of this, too, is that yeah. uh, we were not setting out to do like this intense, you know, multi-part documentary series on every aspect of the life and teaching of Martin Luther, but really to talk about how he intertwines, uh, not so much even with my journey, mm-hmm. but especially with your journey, because it's pivotal uh, understanding Luther mm-hmm. was pivotal in in your own journey that ended up sending you to the Catholic Church. So, I mean, you can't really have that conversation without having this one. Yeah, in fact, that's what I want to do to conclude. Really, is I want to um, I want to show how Luther's story connected and connects in a profound way with my own story and what eventually drove me into the Catholic Church. And I want to begin, though, by reiterating something that I said at the very beginning of this series, and and that is that as a Protestant for about 20 years, Martin Luther, the only way I can say it, Martin Luther was magic to me. I loved Martin Luther with all of his personal faults that I was familiar with, because I'd read some biographies too, and read Luther, quite a bit of Luther. Despite his personal faults, I believed him to to have been one of the greatest heroes of all of Christian history. And because of that, I just want to reiterate the fact that I understand, and I understand to this day, why Protestants feel as they do about Martin Luther. Um, looking again at Heiko Obermann, he's a, he, he's a very well-known Protestant scholar, historian. Uh, he, he tells us that when Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's partner, you know, and well, Luther's disciple at the beginning, but his great partner in the Reformed work, um, when he received news of Luther's death, he was at that moment in the university classroom lecturing on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. And this is how Obermann describes what happened. In the middle of the lecture, a messenger burst in with the news of Luther's death. Melanchthon struggled for control, unable to speak, but finally, his voice faltering, told his students what had happened, breaking out in anguish with Elisha's 
horrified cry as he saw the prophet Elijah ascending to heaven in the chariot of fire. Lengthen said, the charioteer of Israel has fallen. The charioteer of Israel has fallen. At Luther's funeral, then Melanchthon, who, who spoke at the funeral, he spoke of Luther as, I'm quoting again, God's instrument for renewing the church. Luther was God's instrument for renewing the church. And again, I understand thoroughly why Protestants feel this. And I want to state one more time, although I've stated it a couple already, the Catholic church has never, ever asserted that everything Luther was about was wrong or everything Luther cared about or, or everything Luther said about the desperate need for moral reform within the Catholic church was wrong. They, the church has never insisted on this. In fact, the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent, which took place between 1545 and 1563, implemented a number of reforms that it, that it was the reformers who had brought uh, to light. That is, reforms that were needed that the reformers brought to light. Um, were implemented at the Reformation Council or the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent. So, again, just to clarify, Matt, as we launch into this, what the church has insisted and what I came to believe over time is that the two primary doctrinal innovations, the two primary doctrinal innovations to come out of the Reformation, referred to as the material principle of the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, and the right of private interpretation that follows from it. What the church has insisted is that these were wrong. <laughs> that is, these two primary uh, formulations were wrong, that they were unbiblical, that they were non-historical. They led to the breakup of Christendom in the 16th century, and they have led since that time to a continual breakup and fragmenting within the, the Protestant world itself. That's the thing that the church has asserted, and that's the thing that I came to believe that I want to delve into today. Unless you have some introductory thoughts. Well, I mean... Go for it, huh? Again, this is, this is kind of a such a surreal thing for me to kind of go back through because I remember when... You know, unlike you, when you began to discover, you know, the real Luther, you were probably endeared to him. And I had always kind of seen him as this figure that broke the spell of mm -hmm. medieval pagan Catholicism. And now we were mm -hmm. all free. And then as a Wesleyan holiness kid, when I started to actually read him, I was horrified, <laughs> right, uh, by his thoughts on predestination and even on his thoughts on, well, as you were, you know, mentioning in the justification mm -hmm. uh, portion of this on on the moral unraveling of things and then the implications of what it means to, well, I'm going, I'm jumping too far ahead because okay. you're getting ready to sum some of this stuff yeah. up. Okay. Well, then we're going to talk through these two principles again in, in terms of my own story. Okay. First, the material principle justification by faith alone. Earlier in this series, uh, in particular episodes 93, 94, and 95 of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, I explained how Luther came to his doctrine of justification by faith alone and how I came to abandon the doctrine as being unbiblical, and I also mentioned unhistorical, but I barely touched on that. I focused more on the biblical material in those episodes, and what I want to do here as I come back and summarize in a way is focus on the historical question. It was when I read Alistair McGrath, and Alistair McGrath is a very well-known, respected Protestant theologian, a professor at Oxford, it's when I read Alistair McGrath's two-volume History of the Christian Doctrine of Justification that it hit me like a brick to the forehead to hear this world-class Protestant scholar, theologian, and historian essentially admit, in fact, it's not even essentially, he admits that Luther's conception of the nature of justification was unknown in the first 14 centuries of Christian history and thought. He refers to it as a theological novum. And what I want to do here, especially for those who have maybe heard and never heard what I'm just saying, is I want to quickly walk through the argument that McGrath makes in these two volumes. Um, just walk through it quick, quickly, but, but enough so that people, people can see the structure of his argument. Because he, he begins by looking at the patristic period, the period of the early church fathers, and what he says of the doctrine of justification at this point 
is that in these early centuries, he says, there really is no development of a theology of justification. There is no formulation of a doctrine of justification. He says, when you read the early church fathers, basically, they talk about salvation repeatedly, but what they do usually is they simply quote or paraphrase lines from the New Testament. There is no digging in to interpret what it means and to formulate some theology. In fact, what McGrath tells us is that for a definitive formulation of a theology of justification, we have to look to St. Augustine in the early 5th century. And when we look to Augustine's formulation, what we see, again, this is from McGrath, is in all essentials, the Catholic doctrine of justification. Justification, McGrath tells us in Augustine, is the word that is used to describe the entire process by which we are forgiven for our sins and transformed and made fit for heaven. So it it includes the forgiveness of sins, justification, and it also includes our renewal in the image of Christ, what we refer to as regeneration, sanctification, being made fit for heaven. But the point that's important is this. In Augustine, justification has nothing to do with uh, this forensic idea of the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed or credited to the accounts of those who believe, which was the very heart of the Reformation conception coming from Luther, Melanchthon, and Calvin. Quoting McGrath on this, Matt, man's righteousness, he's talking about Augustine's theology, man's righteousness affected in justification is regarded by Augustine as inherent rather than imputed. And, and I just want to say, McGrath is writing as a Protestant scholar, so he understands pro- the Protestant doctrine of justification inside and out, and that's why he's, make, he's able to make these clear distinctions. It's regarded by Augustine as inherent justification rather than imputed. Justification includes both the beginnings of man's righteousness before God and its subsequent perfection, the event, beginning, and the process. A real change in man's being, not merely his status, is envisaged in his view of justification. So that man becomes righteous and a son of God is not merely treated as if he were righteous and a son of God. And again, McGrath is stating this knowing full well what the Reformation view is. And the Reformation view is that justification is about a change in status. Our status is changed before God. We are viewed in the eyes of God as as though we were just, even though we're not. We are treated as if we are righteous, even though in reality we are like a dunghill, well, in particular you, but we are like a dunghill covered by snow, okay? So I've been this, called this is very, very... I've been called worse. Yeah, I'm sure you have. I think I've called you worse. So... Go ahead. Let the dunghill speak. Speak. For I'm not a dumb dunghill. I'm a dunghill with a tongue. (laughs) All right, so this is something that was fascinating to me when I looked into the early church for the first time because I did not Mm -hmm. find, uh, right, the... I mean, I don't think I was even looking for the Luther, you know, versus no. the Catholic Church argument. I was looking for more of like the Calvin versus Arminian argument. Yeah. That's yeah, kind of what I was looking for. Well. Uh, but I was also looking at it through the lens of, you know, the possibility of a second work of grace that we called in my world an entire sanctification. And I mm-hmm. did find something that I felt looked a little bit like that in the early church, right? Mm-hmm. When you talk about the idea of theosis and divinization and deification, and like when St. Irenaeus says that, you know, man come, becomes mm-hmm. like us so that we can become, or I mean, that God becomes like us so we can become like God, right? Mm-hmm. You do find that all over mm-hmm. the place mm-hmm. in the early mm-hmm. church. This idea that God really does want to call us up into his very own life, right? Into the life of the Trinity. Not that we become gods of our own planets, like you know, you hear sometimes in like Mormonism. Mormon theology, but that is like, there is some call for us to be truly like something well, you're, actually you're happens just... to us and not just to the way that we're classified. Um, like it actually yeah, changes it... us and not just our, our standing. Well, what, what you're emphasizing and the way you're describing it now is more the Eastern side uh, or the Eastern way of, 
of, of talking about this, whereas Augustine epitomizes the a more no, the Western Latin way of looking way. at this. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Latin way. But in both situations, yeah, justification is envisaged as a real change. Um, it, again, it includes the forgiveness of sins, but it includes our entire sanctification being made fit, being transformed again into the very image of Christ. The Eastern Fathers... But even by involving that in a conversation about justification, what I'm doing is mm -hmm. I'm using legal language to try and go back and describe that, (laughs) right? Which is not how, you know, the Eastern Fathers would have described that. They wouldn't have said, well, let's imagine we're in a courtroom, right? That's not how they describe theosis or divinization or any of that stuff. Whether whether you're looking at the Eastern Fathers or the Western Fathers, what McGrath is saying here he's focusing on Augustine, but what he's saying is that what you don't have, what you don't have, is any sense that justification is a separate concept from sanctification. That they're that they're very very different, and that justification has to do with the legal imputation, the legal crediting of righteousness, such that our status changes, such that God begins to view us as though we were righteous. And then sanctification has to do with the actual process of us being changed and becoming righteous. He's saying in Augustine, no, justification is the word that is used to describe the whole process of us being made fit for heaven. And that process does not include legal imputation. Okay, let let me move forward. Augustine moves on from Augustine then to describe the development of the doctrine of justification during the medieval period. So now he's talking about McGrath moves on from Augustine. You said Augustine oh, moves that? on from Augustine. <laughs> oh, no. Augustine does not leave Augustine behind. Well, he Augustine stays extremely his... Augustinian the whole time. But some of his retractions, he did leave himself behind in some ways. But yeah, I misspoke. McGrath moves on from Augustine, okay, to talk about the development of the doctrine of justification during the medieval period. So now, now he's looking at the 5th century... Augustine, all the way up to the Reformation at the time of Luther in the 15th century. So about a thousand years now. And what he's able to say, what McGrath is able to say, is that what we see in the history of the development of Christian thought during these during this millennium of time is really just, and I quote, an elaboration of Augustine's framework. Okay? This is what he says. I'm quoting McGrath. Justification is universally understood to involve a real change in its object, the renovation as well as the forgiveness of the sinner. Okay, so we're up to the 1500s now, and what McGrath is telling us is that the doctrine of justification all along is Catholic, to put it in a nutshell. You have Augustine formulating the doctrine, and then you have a thousand years in which this doctrine is elaborated. There's an elaboration on the theology of Augustine. And, and so it's the Catholic view. Finally, then, McGrath comes to Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, and the Reformers. And here's the paragraph in, in particular, Matt, that, that, that was the brick hitting me in the forehead. Because when I read this, I was still a Baptist pastor. This is what McGrath said. Despite the astonishing theological diversity of the late medieval period, he's saying on, on all kinds of issues, there was, there's a lot of diversity in the theology of the late medieval period. A consensus relating to the nature of justification was maintained throughout. It continued to be understood as the process by which a man is made righteous. The essential feature of the Reformation doctrine of justification is that a deliberate and systematic distinction is made between justification, legal imputation, and regeneration, the actual changing sanctification of the person, okay? A deliberate and systematic distinction is made between justification and regeneration where none had been acknowledged before in the history of the Christian doctrine. A fundamental discontinuity was introduced into the Western theological tradition where none had ever existed or ever been contemplated before. The Reformation understanding of the nature of justification as legal crediting imputation must therefore be regarded as a genuine theological novum. Okay. I mean, here's a world-class Protestant scholar but he's so honest 
that he doesn't even say, well, a slight change was made in the understanding of justification or something like that. Instead, he comes out and he says, the view of justification that was espoused at the time of the Reformation has no precursor. It had never, this distinction between justification as this legal crediting of righteousness and then sanctification as the real change affected within the person, this distinction, he says, had never been envisaged before. It had never, been con never even been contemplated. It's a genuine theological novum. And, okay, and here's so the thing that, here's my okay, question you, then you go for ahead. you, uh, because you're a Baptist pastor, but you're an American Baptist, right? So uh, yeah. there are a, a hundred different kinds of Baptists, but there are some Baptists who would say that Baptist theology doesn't show up in a post-Reformation world, you know, down the line. Some would argue that there's a Baptist thread that is woven through all of Christian history. But if so, yeah. and Baptists uh, very often hold to some form of what you've just articulated as justification, mm -hmm. then where is it? Why do we have the Donatists and the Marcionites and the Gnostics and the records of Pelagianism, and we have records of every heresy under the sun— we have ever, ref, uh, records of councils combating Nestorius and Arius. We got no record of this, like none. Well, it, okay, that's ex okay. In part, you are leaping ahead to something we're going to cover, and so I'm going to uh, cut you off below the knees, as I did when we were talking about circumcision. But, but thank you. But, sorry, no, sorry. But, but, but in part, you're making a good point, and it's the point that it, it's it's the point that um that Alistair McGrath is making exactly about justification. Yeah, we could make the same point about other aspects of Baptist theology. You know, where do we find evidence of it? But on this, but on the, I mean, on the teaching of justification, that's exactly the point he is making, is that there's not a hint of it. There's not a hint of the Reformation doctrine of justification until we get to this point. But hold off and on the Donatists and the, and the Nestorians and the Arians. Hold off of on that, All kinds please. of people. Yeah, all I, kinds hold of off on people. that, though. So... Yeah, hold off on that though, because that's going to come in. That that's going to come in in a few minutes. Okay, I'm just going to chew so on I my pen to, for a second. Yeah, I have to make the dumb ahead, dumb 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 once again, and and uh, I'm going to go back under you, the snow okay? for a second. Yeah, <laughs> pull the <laughs> pull the snow back over your head. <laughs> Sorry, too many jokes here today. I apologize. I apologize. Okay. We're closing out right. a series. Cut us some slack. Uh, okay, in, okay. In seriousness, though, okay. Here's the thing that was powerful to me about McGrath. There was a lot that was powerful, but this is the thing that really hit me. Okay, Luther, as well as every serious Reformation-minded Protestant since then, including Jonathan Edwards, including John Owen, including Calvin, including me, I mean, it, I don't put myself in their camp, but I mean, I believe this as well, okay? Luther taught that this doctrine of justification was so important and that it was so clearly taught in the New Testament that it should be treated as the article upon which the church stands or falls. If you don't have the right doctrine of justification, the church has fallen. And in order to make the church stand again, or to, to use the image that you came up with a little while ago, to bring it out of the dark ages into the, the full glorious light of the Reformation, you have to accept this doctrine of justification. And yet no one saw it. And yet McGrath tells us it's brand new, it's a theological novum, and it had never been contemplated, and yet it's that clearly taught. Not by taught. John Chrysostom, not by St. Uh, Patrick, yeah, not by St. Augustine, clearly taught. not by Origen or and Tertullian. it's so important. No, not by... And it's Irenaeus, so important. Ignatius of Antioch, none of them saw It's this. so important you can't be saved. Or to, or to put it another way, Luther was willing to throw the epistle of St. James into the stove and burn it because, and I'm quoting him, it is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works. Okay, Luther's ready to throw the epistle of St. James into the stove and burn it up. He's so certain that he's right on this doctrine of justification that he's able to write, quoting Luther again, I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even the angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. And yet, it's new? And yet, no one saw it. 
Okay, now this is where we're going to come pretty soon to Nestorianism, but but hold off. Just do not speak that word again for about. Well, the five only other minutes, thing that right? I want to add here, the only one I want to add here is that the material principle of the Reformation is the doctrine of justification. But if yeah. Luther is will is willing to throw Jimmy on the stove, right, to get rid of the Book of James, or is like at least willing to to talk about it, mm-hmm. rather than give up the material principle. He's willing to violate the formal principle of the Reformation of Sola Scriptura in order to hold to the material Reformation principle of justification by faith alone. And that to me is yeah, wild. That's a, that is wild. So. And that's an interesting, interesting thought because yes, well, I, I was just going to come to the formal principle. Well, let, let me state this then I'll, then I'll fold back on what you just said. But it, it was this kind of thing that is, this doctrine of justification is so important that I can't be saved without holding it, and yet no one held it for 1,500 years until Luther comes along. It was, it was this kind of thing that was leading me to question the whole idea upon which Protestantism as a worldview was founded, and that is the formal principle of the Reformation, you know, that Scripture is the only binding rule of faith and practice um, for the Church, and that each Christian is free to study it and decide for himself. But you're right. It, uh, Luther was so committed to his view of justification that he was willing to at least entertain the idea that Luther that that Saint James should be thrown out. Um, and I would be pra- paraphrasing here, but there are a few other statements that Luther made where he said um, basically um, the justification. Is, my doctrine of justification is so true that it would be true even if it's. Um, Barabbas that is teaching it, or the devil, and and the doctrine of justification taught by the Catholic Church is false, uh, even if it were James that were teaching it, or Paul. So, you know, he didn't believe that Paul was teaching it, but, but there is a little hint of what uh, you're see, saying here. What I you're think suggesting I used to be his, a lot more bothered by statements like that from Luther, but I know that it's just him be like, colorful and shocking. I'm less concerned about that yeah. kind of stuff than I am about some of the stuff yeah. you're getting ready to get into with Sola Scriptura. Yeah. Well, he was colorful and he was shocking, but I do think that you're touching on something. I think his commitment to Sola Fide, the material principle, was so deep that it at least led him to wonder about the canon, which books should be in the canon. And early on, at least, he removed four books from the from the New Testament canon and put them into kind of an appendix, then he ended up bringing them back in. But I don't want to go off on that. Oh, okay. Here's the thing. While Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone launched the Reformation, it's another way of saying it, I think, it was the doctrine of sola scriptura that solidified the Reformation and Protestantism as a worldview distinct from Catholicism. If justification is the main, is the primary doctrinal issue or material issue, the the matter, if you will. It's sola scriptura that forms the foundation and solidifies Protestantism as a worldview. And what I mean by a worldview distinct from Catholicism is simply this. When you say that scripture is the only authority that actually will bind the conscience of a Christian, you have erased the whole conception of an authoritative church. Just right there, okay? If I say to you, Matt, the only authority that actually binds your conscience on the bottom line is the Bible, that's the only authority, I have effectively erased the entire notion of their existing and authoritative church. In other words, I've wiped out Catholicism, because that's the And this Catholic is a very claim. interesting thing, because... Because you've got a real problem now with what to do with Saint Augustine, and we don't we don't need to get too deep into this. But um, early on, after becoming Catholic, I was taking a few classes, you know, to try and learn a little bit about church history, which mm-hmm. was just a a complete void uh, in my understanding. And coming <laughs> yeah. across this idea that some of the debate of what's in the Reformation is Augustine on grace versus Augustine on the church, and trying to split Augustine in half, and Augustine on grace gives you Luther, Augustine on the church leaves you within the church, but Ultimately, mm-hmm. Augustine would not have ever separated grace from the church, <laughs> right? He would have said that this is a no. place where you go and find um, 
the sacramental means of grace, right? And, right, and that sort right. of thing. So, but you wipe all that out, and all you've got is trying to like establish a means of grace while cutting the church completely out, which means that you're only reading like percentages of Augustine, and you're not reading, which is crazy because yeah, Augustine is one whole... of the people who so often cited in the Reformation. So, yeah, and that that is a pattern that is repeated for doctrine after doctrine after doctrine that, uh, you know, St. Augustine's writings are so voluminous that you can go there and you you can pick out things that seem to support your side. The only problem is he has the other side on there as well, the side which cannot be accepted from the Protestant worldview. Okay, we well, talked the about the material. That is the visible church, right? It's the visible church yes. that Augustine's yeah. thinking from. And now that's yeah. gone if this formal principle yeah. is going to stick. Well, well yeah, what I meant was, another example would be his doctrine of the Eucharist. You can pick out passages where he talks about the bread and the wine symbolizing the body and blood of Christ, and you could jump up and say, ah, he wasn't Catholic in his view. But then there are other passages where he says, this is the body and blood of Christ. So he's able to hold both together where the uh, Baptist, at least, could only say one of those things. Okay, listen. Okay, go back under the snow for a minute. Okay, listen. We just talked about the material principle of the Reformation, so now we're moving to the um, to the formal principle, sola scriptura. Now, in episodes three through eight of of um, on the journey with Matt and Ken, we did a, well. We did a whole series on sola scriptura early on, but in episodes three through eight, I explained in quite a bit of detail how I came to the conclusion that sola scriptura was not the teaching of the Bible that it was not biblical, that it was never in the minds of the apostles who wrote the New Testament books. And the time that we have here then, I, I, I want to, as we just did with justification, I want to focus on the, on the historical side of the question. And I want to summarize what drove me to the conclusion that not only was sola scriptura not biblical, but not only was it never in the minds of the apostles, what drove me to the conclusion that it was never in the minds of the early church fathers and never in the minds of the church, period, that it was not the faith of Christianity? And I want to make a, just a, a series of three points to draw this out. The first one was this. The thought occurred to me that if sola scriptura had been the faith of the early church, and I'm talking about the post-apostolic church, the church of the first, late first century, second century, third century, if sola scriptura scriptura had been the faith of the early church, why in the world did the church take 300 years to formalize the canon of scripture? Why was this not the very first priority of Christianity? What I did was I put myself, a simple process, I put myself into the shoes of any one of the earliest bishops after the apostles had died. And it seemed just perfectly obvious to me that if I was looking at the Bible as Protestants look at the Bible, and as I looked at the Bible as a Protestant, as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for Christians, I would have made the formalization of the canon my number one priority. I mean, it would have been the burning passion of my life, and I would think it would have been the burning passion of every bishop's life in the early church. You know, because that's the foundation. We've got to lay the foundation. First things first, we have got to, the apostles are, get, are dying off. We have to collect all of their writings and we have to decide which ones, I mean, which writings that are circulating around are, are inspired and authoritative and which are not. And yet, this is not what we see happening in the early centuries of the church. And so the question just came to me, why? If they were committed to Sola Scriptura, why? Now, in Protestant apologist James White, very, very famous name within Protestant apologetics, anti-Catholic apologetics too, in his book, Answers to Catholic Claims, James White, he describes the church's motivation for finally de defining the canon of scripture in the fourth century, okay? In, in the late fourth century, he describes the church's motivation without realizing, I think, the implications that this fact has for his belief that the early church was a church that was committed to Sola Scriptura. I'll elaborate on that, but let me read what he says. And he's talking about the formulation of the canon in the third, I mean, in the fourth century and fi finalized near the end of the fourth century. 
In the early history of the church, there were events and people that gave impetus and rise to the formalization of the canon list. These things could be viewed as being used by God to prompt his people, the church, to give serious consideration to providing to all concerned a listing of the books which the church, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, received as authoritative. And I, I remember that when the time came where I read this paragraph, and I just thought to myself, what? I mean, here's a church theoretically committed to sola scriptura from the beginning. Okay? So the church is totally committed to sola scriptura, and yet the Holy Spirit needs to prompt the people of God. And in the fourth century, not, not the second, not the, the Holy Spirit needs to prompt the people of God to give, you know, quoting James White's words, to give serious consideration to providing to all concerned a listing of the books, which the church, you know, wouldn't everyone have been concerned? That's wouldn't not my burning have question wanted- when I hear someone say that, by the way, when I start to discover this concept and this thing about the Bible not being assembled until that era. My question is is something a little bit more basic and visceral and primal, which is, wait, which church? Like, which church are we talking about here? <laughs> right? Oh, um, that, yeah. Well, he's, so, he's yeah. willing to say the church, the people of God, the church that existed at that time. Okay, but the, 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 thing that's, the, the thing that's freaking me out, really, is that he feels comfortable. You know, he's very casual. He feels comfortable saying that events and people gave impetus. And, and, and what he means is the heretical sects that were floating around, the Marcionites in particular but, and, and others, gave impetus to the rise of the formalization of the canon list. And, and, and he's able to say very comfortably, yeah, it, it's like the, the, the Holy Spirit used these events to prompt the people of God to give serious consideration. You know, like, hey, I think we should consider, you know, coming up with an with a formalization, a final list, because after all, some may be concerned and, and, and want to know. And, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this is, this is sort of like this in my mind. I came up with an analogy. This would be sort of like the city of New York after, the, after 9-11, rebuilding the World Trade Center. And then two or 300 years later, you know, an architect scratching his head and saying, you know, maybe we should give serious consideration to putting a foundation under this thing. You know, you know after all, for those who might be concerned, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just like, what? The foundation comes first. All right, I've, so anyway. I mean, it, it, what, it, what it means is that there, there was a foundation. It just wasn't necessarily based on the formalized canon. Even if those things were floating around as scripture, it meant that the formal, the, there was there was a foundation, but it was like all these moving pieces together, and then they decided that they were going to, I mean, it is hard to wrap your mount, mind around the idea that, what we look at, like the 380s, when you get the councils that really get mm-hmm. the canon, like, locked and loaded, for the New Testament, at least. Yeah. Yeah. The United States of America is what, like two hundred and forty some years old. Like, yeah. the church has been around for a hundred and forty years yeah. longer than the United States of America existed before yeah. it when gets it's formalized to the canon. The canon. That's nuts. That's nuts. Yeah, and what it shows, you are correct. There was a foundation, obviously, that they were operating with. But it, what I'm saying is that this fact presented me with a strong argument that that foundation was not sola scriptura, that the early church was not thinking like a Protestant oh, church. Oh, you find plenty of people quoting the scriptures foundation, all through that time period, right? But its foundation um, it's must have been scripture and, well, the three-legged stool of Catholicism, sacred tradition, and the authority of the church. Okay, but my point is, this is one of the things that occurred to me in looking at early church history that began to argue that Sola Scriptura wasn't historical. But let me move on to a second one, because I'm, I'm putting a package together here. The second thing is this. It occurred to me that if Sola Scriptura had been, again, the faith and practice of Christianity from the first, why don't we see multiple Christian denominations in the early centuries of the church? 
okay, now I, I need to define this a little bit. If Sola Scriptura had been the practice from the beginning of, the Christ, of Christianity, why don't we see multiple Christian denominations, multiple Christian denominations in the early centuries of the church? And I'm saying that because, remember, within two years of Martin Luther standing before the Diet of Worms, he was complaining that there were as many sects and beliefs as there are heads. Immediately, the Protestant movement began to fragment into what we could call denominations. You have the Lutheran branch, you have the Zwinglian branch, you have the Anabaptists, pretty soon you have the Calvinists. Okay, it begins to fragment into Christian denominations. And we see that fragmentation continuing all the way to the present within Protestantism. And so the question I'm asking is, if Christians from the beginning were committed to Sola Scriptura, then wouldn't we have seen this kind of fragmentation from the beginning? That is, wouldn't we have seen movements that were like Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches and Nazarene and Lutheran? Wouldn't we have seen Christian denominations formulating like they did very naturally after the Reformation? Instead, but we don't see that. Instead, what we see is the church. We see the church, and then we see heretical groups like Marcionites, like Arians, like Eutychians, Nestorians, Donatists, Montanists. And the church answers these heresies and continues on as one church. Okay, you see what I'm saying? It's a different thing. What we find in early church history is a church dealing with heretical groups, answering those heretical groups or answering those heresies and continuing on as one church. We don't see what we see after the time of the Reformation, that is, the rise of numerous versions of Christianity that remain versions of Christianity. In fact, there's enough unity in the early church that St. Irenaeus could write, and I, this is near the end of the second century, Evidently, there was enough of unity, enough of a conception of one church that Irenaeus could write this. As I said before, the church having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet guarded it as if she occupied but one house. She likewise believes these things just as if she had one soul and one in the same heart. And harmoniously, she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition, the teaching of the church, the doctrine of the church, is one and the same. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor do those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those which have been established in the central region of the world, Rome, Italy. But as the sun that creature of God is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shineth everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is close to the end of the second century, Matt, and the very fact that he's able to describe the church as speaking with one heart, one voice, all the way from Libya to, you know, Syria, to Rome, to Gaul, to, you know, to everywhere, shows that Rather than having, in the early centuries of Christianity, rather than having anything like what we see in the early decades and centuries of Protestantism, a fragmenting into Christian denominations, we don't have that at all. Instead, we have one church that is growing, filling the then-known world, the Roman world, that is continually organizing itself, organizing its theology, organizing its canon of Scripture— developing its theology, solidifying its authority. We have that, we see that existing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Without the internet. This argued, this argued that Sola Scriptura could not have been the practice of the early church is another. Well, and there's, there's other pieces of this too. Um, And it comes up with stuff like the tradition of uh, Thomas, the apostle going to India and then, you know, later missionaries, you know, mm-hmm. all, you know, centuries later going back to India to evangelize and finding Christians and be like, oh, you guys are doing basically what Thomas taught you, which is not that different from what we're doing here. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's amazing 
um, you know, and, and you hear stories about like this um, in Japan, right, where the church will go in and leave a tradition and then uh, be shut out of a country for a while and then come back, or with the Maronite Christians um, who, you know, were cut off at various points and then to come back and to realize things just still got handed down along the way because that's what they had been taught right. to do. It's just a right. Again, it's a completely different. Um, it's a way different of thing, at it and 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 as much as some people would like to say, oh, there was plenty of division within the Catholic Church, you know, from the beginning and all that. Wait, hold on. No, what you have is a church that is called the Catholic Church, very early, beginning with Saint Ignatius in the early second century. We have one church, and you have all these heretical positions. The first real split is the Coptic Church is splitting off, and that's in the 6th century. And their theology overlaps almost identically with Catholic theology. You have the, the split of the Coptics, and then you have the East-West split. In the 11th century, you, you do not have anything like the development of many Christian denominations in the early centuries of the Church. Anything when you like have what someone, you have at the Reformation— yeah. You don't have a group of Christianity over here that splits off in like the 250s that says, well, we believe that baptism is just a symbol and this other group does not. And then you have two groups of Christianity growing up. No, if you have yeah. dissent in those centuries, it's people who are like, we're not real sure that Jesus was God or we're not right. real sure that Jesus was actually human flesh. We think he might have been a hologram or like something that's like an aberration mm -hmm. of the Trinity yeah, uh, or a, 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 an, un, an understanding of the Godhead, right? Um, or and something that I mean, is rejected all, and is still rejected by by Christians on both sides by, by every Protestant, right? Like Protestants yeah. aren't like, well, Jesus was a hologram. Protestants are like, yeah, we we hold to that too. <laughs> you know, the the Jesus is true God and true. Mm -hmm. We hold to the hypostatic union too. I mean, these are the battles that are going on. So when you see what's left standing, uh, which is you know what some might say Orthodox Christianity or uh, you know, that's it's one thing. Orthodox in a very loosely based use of the term. All those things that fundamentalist Christians believe about the virgin birth and about, uh, you know, that Jesus really did die and rise. Mm -hmm. Like, that's stuff that, I mean, if you believe that in those centuries, you were a Catholic Christian. Period. Yes. Yeah. If you didn't believe those yeah. things, you were an historian or you were an Arian or something else. Okay, let me run to my point three, though, so we don't have the longest episode we've Sorry, ever you're getting had. me in the weeds. Back to the dumb. I mean, if we do have the longest, that wouldn't be... Okay, I'm talking about Sola Scriptura. I'm talking about my own story, and I'm saying, first of all, it occurred to me that if the church had been committed to Sola Scriptura, why would they have waited like they did to formulate the canon? It doesn't make sense. Secondly, if the early church had been committed to Sola Scriptura, then why don't we see the formulation or the why don't we see Christian denominations forming early on like they did after the Reformation? Christian denominations. Why do we see one church fighting off heretical groups that once they're destroyed, they remain the destroyed heretical groups forever, really? Why do we why don't we see what we saw after the Reformation? Because we don't. And my third point is this, Matt. If Sola Scriptura had been the faith of the early church from the beginning, why do we hear the fathers of the church routinely, not just once in a while, but routinely making statements about the authority of the church and the church's tradition that Protestants never, ever make? Why do we hear the early church fathers making statements that I would have never, ever thought to, to, to make when I was a Protestant? That's the third thing that hit me, or a third thing that hit me. For instance, I have to read a couple to give examples. I could have preached a trillion sermons from my pulpit, and you would never have heard me say anything remotely like what Origen says in the preface to his Fundamental Doctrines, written in 225 AD. The teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even to this day, or to the present time. That alone is to be believed as the truth, which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. Never ever would I have mumbled, even in my sleep, 
words that would have sounded anything like like that, okay? Okay, here's another one. Here's something else that would have never, ever crossed my mind or really the mind of any Protestant pastor to say. This is from St. Irenaeus, bishop and martyr, writing around 180, well, in the 180s AD in his work against heresies. When, therefore, we have such proofs, it is not necessary to seek among others the truth which is easily obtained from the church. There's your church again, your the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her, that is the church, most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone, whoever wishes to, can draw from her the drink of life. What then? If there should be a dispute over some kind of question, ought we not have recourse to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain in regard to that question? And here's the thing, as a Protestant, it just is like a bell ringing inside my skull. Irenaeus doesn't say that if there's some dispute, shouldn't Ken Hensley pull out his Bible and Matt Swain pull out his Bible and shouldn't we figure it out and decide who's right and wrong? Um, you know, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, ought we not to have recourse to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain? So, Here's Origen. There are many more quotes that I could take to. I'm skipping over it, but there's Origen. There's others from Tertullian and other people. Here's Irenaeus saying things. That's what hit me. Just saying things that I would never have said, that I would never have thought to say as a Protestant. But of course, I could have responded at that point, and I might have said this. This would have been the logical response. But the canon of Scripture hadn't been formalized at that time when Origen's speaking and when Irenaeus is speaking. But now we have the whole thing. And isn't, isn't it true that everything God wants us to know is in the canon of Scripture and is spelled out so clearly that anyone can just read it, and if they have average or above average intelligence, they can understand what's being said? So that's the difference. Now we have the canon. And because of that, I want to read one last quotation. This is from St. Vincent of Lorraine. He's writing in the 5th century, and he's writing specifically about how to distinguish Orthodox Catholic truth from heresy. This is what he says. But here someone perhaps will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with it the authority of the church's interpretation? the sacred tradition, the church's authority. For this reason, because owing to the depth of Holy Scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way, another understands its words in another way, so that it seems to be capable of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. Therefore, it is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various errors that the rule for the right understanding, the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. None of these statements are statements that I would have made as a Protestant pastor and teacher. In fact, I'll go beyond that. None of these are statements that I have ever heard any Protestant pastor or teacher make, or I think would make. And the reason that it never would have entered my mind, the reason it doesn't enter into the mind of a Protestant to make statements like this is because I lived and they live within the thought world of Sola Scriptura. We live within the thought world of Sola Scriptura, where Scripture alone is our sole infallible authority. And so we talk about the Bible. We don't ever talk about ecclesiastical tradition, um, bringing some kind of authority with it or the authority of a church or councils or anything like that. And, but reading these statements, I, I had to conclude the early church bishops and theologians, they did not live and think within the framework or the thought world of Sola Scriptura. They just didn't. Okay. Yeah. Conclusion. My brief conclusion, and then I listened to your comments on this, my, my brief conclusion from this, we've looked at the material principle and looked at the formal principle, is that as much as I admired Martin Luther 
as much as I believed I loved him and I loved reading him, from the moment it became clear to me, Matt, that I was no longer with him on what amount to the two most fundamental issues raised in the Reformation, from the moment I realized that I wasn't with him anymore, I just wasn't with him on the material principle of the Reformation, sola fide, justification, and I wasn't with him on the, on the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, I knew in, uh, in my bones that I was no longer Protestant. And at that point, I could have turned out, I guess, several ways. I, I could have wound up Catholic, which I did. I might have wound up Eastern Orthodox. You know, I could have gone with that 11th century split. Um, I guess I could have theoretically gone with the Coptics in the 6th century, you know. Um, but I wasn't Protestant. I, I, I was going to be a member of one of these ancient churches, the church, the Catholic church, or the Coptics that split off, I guess, or, or the, the Orthodox. I was not going to be uh, with Luther and Calvin and Bucer and Melanchthon and Jonathan Edwards, and John Owen, and all the rest. Well, that's my summarization. I guess that settles that. Uh, and there are other ways and 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 discussions. You know, the trick about this is that by addressing sola scriptura even here, you know, or sola fide here, or even like your own story through this here, we're taking like entire series that we've done before and trying to contextualize them within like basically our understanding of like the chronology of Luther's thought. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not saying you have to go back and watch all 97 other episodes. But <laughs> what I am saying is that, we, well, what I'm saying is that we've covered some ground in other places that we did not get a chance to cover here. Um, the only thing I'll remark about my own story on this is that, you know, when I re read, uh, you know, kind of Roland Bainton's Here I Stand in like a Western Civ class in college, this is my first real live encounter with Luther beyond seeing him in like public school history textbooks and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and I just remember thinking, this can't be... I don't think this is good, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And of course, being in like a Wesleyan Arminian world in which I was reading this, there was kind of this conflicted, you know, perspective on him. Like, you know, he freed us from, you know, medieval paganism, but we don't yeah. really like the direction he took things. And of course, my whole world split off from branches that came through the world of the English Reformation because I was, you know, part of the Methodist world. But yeah. I mean, I think my 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 debates with luther uh were really kind of centered on debates with calvinism and that may be its own series down the road uh you know luther was invoked when necessary but i think it made me first just a much more committed mm -hmm. wesleyan arminian and i think that the implications of that down the road and i've said this in a lot of other places in a lot of other ways you know brought me back further and further um, to the ancient mm -hmm. tradition of, of what it means to be part of a church at all. So, but yeah, there's a well, lot, I think we will, a lot of stuff here. I think, I think we will come back to Calvin, uh, uh, you know, maybe soon, um, because John Calvin was more influential in my life than um, Luther. Luther is very influential in sort of getting the ball rolling, but the way I formalized the faith was more Calvin than it was Luther. But, um, and I will just say this, Yes, I summarized my story today in terms of these two main principles that came out of the Reformation, but you and I did lengthy series on both of them. So if anyone wants to watch the series we did on Sola Scriptura, it begins with episode three of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. Then you just go on to episode four, five, six, seven, whatever. I think it went uh, episode three through 11, something like that. And then the series we did on justification begins with episode 17 of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, and then just goes forward from that for 20 episodes or something like that. But that's it. we're not doing Calvin next. Next. No. I'm very excited uh, just to give people a heads up. We get a lot of requests for like, what are we going to cover at various points? And uh, one of the ones we get the most requests for is to do something on Mary and how in the world did we, from our Protestant backgrounds, you know, mm -hmm. ever come around to anything having to do with the, what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. So, and we're actually going to bring in, so it'll be kind of like a 
a multi-headed thing for that series. I'm really excited because we're also going to bring in a former Pentecostal into the mix, Kenny Burchard, who's the development director at the Coming Home Network, and uh, really kind of get our own journeys together in a multi-part series to discuss how we came around on the question of Mary. So very excited about that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Um, I feel like we should do some like low-end like initiation of Kenny, maybe give him a hard time. <clears throat> Like, you know, do, like, for the rookies, you know, who are new to the NFL. I don't know what we should do. We should do something to Kenny, though, to initiate him in, in this world. All right, and we will welcome him to come out from under the, the snow covered. The uh, but, but you and I will go back under the snow at this point and uh, close out. Right, we'll be off for a couple weeks between now and then. In the meantime, go back and check out some of our old episodes. chnetwork.org um, is where you can find all of those. You can find us on our online community as well. That's community.chnetwork.org. And of course, you can also support our work and help us to keep doing stuff like this by going to chnetwork.org slash compass. We would love to have your support. Kenneth of the House of Hensley, thank you again for another great series. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.